Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals, and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. Today we'll be speaking with Charu Gandhi. Charu is the director and founder of Elysian, which is a luxury interior design practice based in Kensington, London. I first met Charu in maybe 2018 or 19, and she had been speaking at an event where I was a guest. After that, when we were mingling, I had the opportunity to speak to her on a one-to-one. And Charu struck me as being different in so much that she was authentic, honest, quite direct and so generous and willing to share business techniques, issues, helping, you know, resolve ideas. And since then, I have admired her work incredibly because frankly, it is amazing, but also her ability to be a strong businesswoman who has a very clear vision and knows how to implement it. Hi Charu, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to have you here and speak to one of the most um, impressive designers that I very much admire. Would you start off by introducing yourself and just explaining to our listeners a little bit about who you are and your company and where you've got to? Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Good evening. Uh, Firstly, how wonderful that you've uh, set up this podcast forum and the mission you've uh, sort of tasked yourself with is very impressive. So I'm very (laughs) pleased and honored to be here. Uh, So I'm Charu Gandhi. I am the founder of Elysian. We are a interior design and interior architecture studio. I founded Elysian nine and a half years ago. And our focus is on the luxury residential market, catering to the sort of very ultra high net worth clients, both uh, their private homes and properties, but also within that remit, working with developers and branded residences. Uh, the team has grown to 35 strong based out of our wow. Kensington studio And we're a mix of interior designers, architects, project managers, procurement, uh, and the support team that supports the sort of design team. So that's that's where I'm at today. Wonderful. That's amazing. The last time I spoke to you, you were a team of 21. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's quite some growth. Yes, we've Um, grown. We have grown. That's magnificent. So have you always been an interior designer? How did you start... Great question. I'm an architect by training. Uh, So I studied architecture at a school called the Architectural Association, and I graduated from there uh, in 
2004. So I've been practicing for near on 20 years. And after practicing architecture in its, I guess you could say, purer form for many years, I then worked at a company called Candy and Candy uh, for three years from 2010 to 2013. And it was during my time at uh, Candy and Candy that I sort of self-taught myself interiors. In the last few years before I joined Candy and Candy, my work had already started to focus on the residential space and naturally sort of segued into looking more at the inside of buildings rather than the externals. So interior design has been a passion that's developed into a career alongside my architectural background. Incredible. So you've always had that creative interest in buildings and the way in which in which we live and operate within them. Yes. Did you establish when you started out that that was your intention to grow a very, very large London practice? Uh, So I did. I created a a business plan that was a three-year business plan uh, and then a five-year one. And I had this idea in my head of the key components that a studio needed to offer what was a core part of my vision, which was to bring architecture and interior design together in a truly seamless experience. In my own professional career of sort of fluidly moving from architecture to interior design, I saw this wonderful opportunity to see spaces very comprehensively, uh, seeing the flow of space, the spatial arrangement of space, sequence of space alongside the decorative uh, and the the layering and the textiles and the the materiality, and when I set out this sort of business plan and team structure, it led me to create a team of twenty six to twenty eight people that had all these functions that I thought were needed. So in the in the back of my mind, yes, I've never been unsure about whether. The studio was going to be about a team. I've never been unsure that it was going to be of a reasonable size. We sort of hit our, uh, you know, five-year plan in the first three or four years. So we were a little bit ahead. Then we shrank a fair bit uh, in sort of 2021. We shrank, then we've grown again. So there's been a little bit of oscillating around the sort of 20 mark. And then over the last year, year and a half, we've grown quite steadily. And I'm really, really thrilled with the team structure we have now Uh, it sort of ticks all those boxes of the components I felt it needs so you know in the first year itself we were I think 14 people very quickly and I know it's something that comes up when I do talks and speak to people starting out Uh, you know oh how do I should I have a team I'm a I'm a one-man studio or I'm a one-man studio and I have interns coming in and helping me ad hoc And uh, I can completely empathize with what a big leap it is into employing people. But oddly for me, that was not a a hurdle. I think it may have come from the fact that at Allies and Morrison, where I was before Candy and Candy, then at Candy and Candy, I was running teams and had quite a strong sort of leadership management role. And then at my last position, Morpheus, I was head of design where I, in a way, put together a team of 15 and sort of ran that whole department. So it wasn't something that particularly intimidated me because my career had been sort of leading up to this. That is 
a really bold, ambitious business plan and the fact that you achieved it in such a short time frame is really remarkable yes. because it is quite daunting having the responsibility of all that payroll and being people fulfilling career. And over the course of your career, I know that you've crafted many different elements of what you do. What's the structure of your company or your team at the moment? How is it divided? Okay, so a couple of things. Firstly, the payroll aspect. Yes, it's daunting. But for anyone considering diving into having a payroll, it does come down to financial planning and understanding the risk and planning around it and and mitigating it and and setting up a financial structure that supports it so if you are intimidated by that you you know you can work with someone who has that skill set whether full time or part time uh, to help you help you plan that so that you know what you're heading into and what you need to do to service it uh the team structure is we are five directors uh in the in the studio so there's myself as the founder and director uh who sort of sits across the studio there's a creative director who heads up the creative output very, working very closely with me i'm still very very involved in the creative side the projects director he heads up the running of the projects so on in some projects we are project managing and in some we are not project managing the project itself but we internally are running that so the scope the pricing of projects the timing of deliverables we also have a full time finance director which was a big shift for us we only made that shift 2 years ago uh it was a cost that you know for a long time couldn't quite sort of um make that work within the business structure mm-hmm. that's been transformative for me uh it's really really helped me with understanding you know what the business needs what works for us uh so for me a full time finance director has been in a really positive hire we also have a client relationships director uh she focuses on our partnerships man you know working closely with our clients on maintaining client relationships helps us with business development uh oversee some of our marketing those are the sort of key directorships within the studio we then have a team of project managers we have a large team of interior designers that's our biggest team and within the interior design team we have associate designers so they support the creative director closely senior designers designers assistant designers we have an architectural team which is made up of uh, an architectural associate who heads up that side of the studio she is supported by two project architects and then assistant architects and we also have a technical team that does works on our bim so they help us work in in the bim software they help okay. us produce 3d's very quickly we're moving more and more into working straight into a three dimensional uh, approach rather than any flat drawing work we have a procurement team headed up by a procurement manager we have a librarian we have a studio manager we have a finance manager and i have a, a pa who supports me and the other directors that is a very very well considered and clearly very well executed team you've thought about every layer and every chain in the hierarchy is very well structured as well i i'm guessing that having that clear line of accountability and leadership 
is part of the success of being able to manage such a large team? Look at it almost sort of quite regularly because every project in the studio is quite unique. So we sometimes have a project where we'll think, okay, mm. you know, what will be the chain of command here? Uh, and again, you know, not to be deterred by the fact that sometimes the chain of command can be confusing. We have to kind of revisit it. We have what we call a responsibility matrix where we have filled out who does what, but there's still things that come up and someone says, I don't know who to go to for this and we revisit it. So keeping the communication open is key. But what we did is we looked at the life cycle of a project and we looked at who needed to lead at each stage and how we could do that, making sure the expert was leading the appropriate stage while maintaining consistency across the overall design and particularly for the client. You know, how, how would the client have an experience that felt yes. consistent and cohesive while we moved through the different expertise of the studio. That's been the big driver in uh, how we've set it out. And we've looked at different structures for organizations. You know, there is your classic organogram, which is like a like a tree. But there are actually lots mm-hmm. of different ways of laying out company structures. There are ones which are more linear and about the project journey. And that suited us better more than the line of communication. We look more at the flow of work and the relationship with the client and what best supported that. And being visual, like we all are, we've worked that through diagramming and reviewing it visually together, first at a management level and then sharing it with the team. We have a company meeting or a studio-wide meeting every six weeks where we have some quite sort of significant conversations with the team. We talk to them about the you know, utilization we're uh, targeting for them, the number of hours we're expecting them to work in a week, how we're adjusting that. If we've learned over the course of the last year that that number was too high, we talk about our other organization structure. We ask for feedback. We also rely on a software, which is an anonymized uh, internal polling software that at a certain regularity asks the team questions. And sometimes that flags things. You know, we had uh, a few months ago, someone said that Mm. they're finding lines of communication confusing. And we reached out to them and said, look, are you happy to de-anonymize yourself and give us examples? Because contrary to being punished for it, we just really want to know where it's not working. And they did. And we talked about it and had some learnings from it. So trying to evolve and shift as we need to, but trying to stay true to the core ethos and the core structure we've set up. That's really interesting. And I really like the fact that your team are really integral to that kind of um, influence over I mean, I hope they'll agree, but yes, you know, because I, I truly, and this is again, a learning over the course of my career where uh, we have learned, or I have learned that design thrives in a structured environment. That's a huge part of my ethos. And I worked at Allies and Morrison, which was very structured. I worked at Candy and Candy, which was very structured. And I observed and learned that There is a lot of benefit in creating a framework and a structure. And then within that, you can be very creative because you feel safe. You you, you feel you can flourish. You feel you can make those big moves on the creative front. That underpins a lot of my ethos. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by two things, I think, or three things. I'm fascinated by human beings and how they live. I'm fascinated by design and I'm fascinated uh, with business. I really 
enjoy understanding how to run a studio well. Uh, what are the efficiencies? What are the systems? All ultimately to produce beautiful design in a very enjoyable way for our clients. I really resonate with that. I, I'm mm. fascinated by human beings, and you know, particularly the way that we respond in situations. And and you can really scratch the surface of that when you're with a client as well. You can look at how they live and. You get all these nuances come out. You touched earlier upon the fact that you've just brought in a full-time finance director and it has been transformative for you. How has the introduction of such a significant leadership role in the company brought about change? Well, so uh, taking a bit of a step back, actually one of the first people I hired was someone in finance, but it was a part-time role and was someone who was quite junior. So the big shift has been this full-time, quite senior person. I... It harks back to my very early approach to setting up a business was there's lots I probably don't know, or I definitely don't know, and I can't do well. So I'm going to try very early on to bring in the right experts to support me rather than muddling through. Now, of course, I learned in time that there were always bits that I wouldn't know and I would muddle through no matter how many experts I could hire or reach out to. Uh, So I had to do that bit to some extent anyway, but I always knew that hiring someone in finance was central to the studio's longevity because it was the one aspect I just did not know technically. So I did that very early on. So a finance presence has been a part of the studio from, I don't know, three months in. Uh, However, an FD joining full-time in a sort of key role, I think for the rest of us has been incredibly it's felt, it's felt like an incredible relief. It's someone who is looking at our information and telling us a story through the numbers and in many cases reinforcing or questioning some of our beliefs. So a few years ago, felt like the team was having to work Everyone was working really long hours. Uh, We had a lot of sort of people saying, you know, the hours are too long. We're finding the deadlines difficult. And instead of us sort of sitting there, you know, having this sort of um, theoretical discussion, our FD took all his past knowledge and said, I can see exactly why the team is saying that your utilization rate is too high. You're expecting people to spend too much of their week on project work. This is not a realistic level of efficiency, which means you're signing up to timelines that are not viable, which means your team's having to work overtime to hit their timelines. And we made a big adjustment a few years ago where we completely reset our utilization rates. We also had a flat rate across the whole studio. No matter what uh, point you were in your career, we were all expected to work to the same efficiency. So we would have never managed to do that independent of him. And it was transformative, transformative. Uh, It meant that all our projects we were setting up were much more realistic. The pace was correct. People were being able to actually perform their role to the expected efficiency and hours. It was it was really transformative. So that's a great example of the value he's brought. So we rely on him heavily. I think finance is something that designers are always grappling with because, like you've said at the beginning, it's the one thing that's yes. not our, our lane of expertise. And many interior design business owners don't start with any prior yes. financial yes. background by and large. And it's the constant, isn't it, of making sure that projects are profitable, but delivered 
you know, efficiently as well. And there's that sweet spot of trying to get there. During the course of your your career, I know we've discussed this in the past, that there have been moments of learning where things have happened and, and risk particularly is something that I'm quite interested in in terms of how we approach things that expose designers, I think, to some extent, a little bit unfairly to risk because of the nature yes. of the industry that we operate in. One of those things is um, procurement, which... I know you have a procurement team. Can you talk me through how you approach procurement and in particular, whether or not you act as agent or principal? Yes. So we act as declared agent for undeclared principal. So we don't reveal the name of our principal to our suppliers, but we declare that we do have a principal. We've spent some time working on our terms and conditions for our purchase orders on the basis of which we sign up with our suppliers. We do have suppliers who push back and say they want us to work to their terms and conditions. We then take a pause and really do properly review their terms and conditions before we sign up to them. In terms of our clients, we pass them our trade discount completely transparently with a pre-agreed percentage markup. But we're also flexible. And on some projects, we don't charge a markup. We put it all in the fee. It depends on the client, depends on the scope. So overall, our procurement is very transparent. It just cuts out any stress around, you know, sharing prices. Clients want to double check anything. Client pops into a supplier showroom. They, they They can have a fully open conversation. I think that for us is central to the client relationship. We set up an account within our banking system per project. So we keep the client monies completely separate from our own transacting and we don't mix client monies with each other. You know, we're procuring on some projects, the procurement budget is four, five million pounds. You know, we can't afford to have this all mixed up hodgepodge mm-hmm. in different bank uh, accounts. So it's, it's always siloed. It makes it much easier. We are currently working on building an in-house procurement software that you know, connects up with our zero accounting software, connects up with our project management software to create a kind of connected platform. In terms of our procurement itself, we do work with some suppliers on repeat where we have established relationships, know that we can trust them. But we also have a review process to bring on board new suppliers. Now, what we don't want to do is make our onboarding so onerous that a small independent artist who does something really, really special cannot be part of the fold because we'd be missing out. Our clients would be missing out. You know, our whole a big mm-hmm. part of our ethos, our mission statement is to take our clients on a journey that embraces craft and design. And so that I'm very passionate about and mm-hmm. don't want to miss out on. What it might mean, of course, is we may not place the bulk of the order with that smaller artist who maybe has less, you know, financial, uh, they don't have the financial records, they can't go through the due diligence. So we do try our best to profile the risk. But I do tell clients up front that if you want to do something creative and you don't want us to go bulk order from one supplier, there is risk in the process. We will not intentionally expose you to risk. We will try our best to mitigate it. And what we will do is if it comes along, we'll be open and honest with you and we'll work hard to find a solution. We've been very lucky that we haven't Mm -hmm. faced any huge challenge. We haven't had a supplier 
go bust in the middle of a project. But on that point, we do do, Rachel, is we ask for vesting certificates. So if an item or an order okay. is worth over a certain value, our engagement with the supplier includes a vesting certificate, which means whatever of that item has been prepared or is ready or any parts that are part of that order will belong to the client at the moment that the supplier goes into administration. Those items cannot be included in the supplier's asset list. That's really interesting. And what kind of level do you find that that tips into the vesting certificate as an approximate? So we currently have it at a £10,000 mark. Oh, okay. So not that high, really. No, no. So if an item is over £10,000, then we ask the uh, supplier to sign a vesting certificate. So, you know, if say it's a chandelier, you've placed a 40% deposit, they've uh, got the components together, they've started to assemble it, and God forbid they go into administration, the administrators can't sell that off as part of their uh, paying off of the liabilities. We own that. It's not the easiest of situation to be, you know, delivered a giant crate full of rods and wires. But point is, you do own it and you can try and yeah. retrieve it. And if it's yeah. later in the process, by which point, say, you've spent yeah. 80% and the chandelier is very nearly done and it's the last fixings that are left, you can still retrieve it and complete it. And that is something that I think that quite often is a, is mm-hmm. a worry. Mm-hmm. I know that I worry about it. And in our studio, we do credit check. Um, our suppliers but we've always felt that the credit check could be stronger oh yeah in terms of the information so it is really interesting in order to do those things that protect yourself in relation to setting your terms and conditions with suppliers as agent have you ever had a situation whereby you've had a problem post-purchase that's come up and you've had to go back to the supplier and then they've not really liked the fact that they're an agent because they now own the problem yes Uh, We've had issues, uh, you know, we've had a table turn up far too short, turned out that the terms and conditions that we signed up to with them allowed too wide uh, a a range for the dimensions. And we've we've struggled to get them to fix it. Um, So we have had issues in the past with it. Nothing significant. Uh, but we've come come across challenges and then we've adapted our terms and conditions to try and mitigate the challenges as they come up. So when you handle procurement and you've said that you pass on your full trade discount, but you do apply a markup, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, Trevor, if your process is different, that your markup is the revenue required to actually administer the procurement. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. It's not a cherry on the top. It's basically the fees in a markup model, if we didn't charge that, we would make a loss on that whole section of the project. So the client doesn't pay twice for it. It's not a double profit. We stop charging a fee once we enter into the procurement phase. So the procurement markup replaces yeah, yeah, the that's fee. That's similar to us. What it does allow for, the reason we started to do mm-hmm. it was the more complex the procurement, it often costs more, which meant there were naturally covered uh, the team time that was required. It it meant that if the client asked for more items, we weren't going back and asking for more fee. We overall felt it was good for the client relationship uh, and allowed the flex to kind of flex up and down. 
you know, I can see the concerns with it and what what uh, clients may not like about it. So in that instance, we we are also happy to look at it differently. I think, you know, what I try to do with clients um, is be open about the income we want to make reassure them that the income we're going to make is going to be from them. So it's not going to be from uh, any other source. So we're not making any, you know, referral, any, any payments back from suppliers and let them feel that it's fair and reasonable uh, and for the transparency mm-hmm. to lend itself to building that relationship. And I, I guess where I was going with it a little was I'm, I'm assuming that that markup, um, doesn't get put into the client account because that's your operating cash flow required to sustain the procurement. No, no, actually not. That's an interesting question, right? I understand where where you're going with that. We uh, put it all into the client account. The client pays the whole amount into the client account. So say it's, you know, £100,000. It all goes into the client account. We then take it out as we place the orders and as we reconcile the order placement, the reason we do that is we've, we've been very lucky to be cash flow positive very early on in the business. And our finance mm-hmm. team finds that an easier process in terms of the accounting to match it literally to as the orders yes. are placed and it's reconciled. Otherwise, it gets very messy. Legally, we have a right to take it out mm-hmm. straight away. But we don't do that. We actually do it as we as we go through the projects on a monthly basis based on the orders that were placed. We take out the relevant amount. It's just easier from an accounting perspective. Yes. Yeah. No, I understand that. So, Charu, a couple of things that I can recall over the years that um, we observed as kind of learning points for ourselves, really. And one of those was um, when your Instagram. Yes. Um, <laughs> went down and we were yeah. a, fo- a follower of your Instagram and I remember your Instagram went and then you had to rebuild it and I remember was thinking oh my god how does that happen six seven seven years worth of Instagram yeah. posting incredible so how, how did that happen and how have you recovered from that uh, so situation? it happened because we didn't have two-factor authentication set up uh, and so since then, we've worked hard for everything to have two-factor authentication. We work off the cloud as a business. And to work off the cloud, we all have to have an app on our phones. All our phones need to have a, a, a code, you know, need to be behind a code or a, a, a face uh, recognition. And we have to approve things through the app. So there's two-factor uh, authentication. If we'd had that, we wouldn't have had this problem happen at all. So it did teach us something. It happened because the person in our team who managed our Instagram got a message saying, uh, you know, your your Instagram is going to be blocked. You need to click on this link and reset it. And she did that. And in doing that, she shared our password. And immediately we got a message. I, I was saying to you the other day, I'll never forget, it had a dynamite and a gorilla emoji. Uh, and the, the person started to uh, well, hold us ransom and said, if you don't transfer you know, this much money on this link by such and such time, we will start to delete your, first we'll start to delete your posts, then we'll start to delete your followers and the people you follow. Uh, and it, we, in that moment, realized the vulnerability we had because we have no commercial relationship with Instagram. We're not really a customer. 
we are someone who uses the platform mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Instagram aggregates our imagery for us. We have no, there was no number to call. There was no one to reach. I so much so have mm-hmm. family in San Francisco and I asked them to try and drive to the campus and find the Instagram <laughs> building. And I then found out that the Instagram team are kept, this is hearsay, I don't know if it's true, I don't know if it's some sort of urban myth, they're kept sort of hidden on the campus because this is an issue that comes up and people try to reach them and they no one knows where they are, apparently. I don't know if this is true. Uh, and we decided we weren't going to negotiate, but what we were going to f- focus our energy wa- on was to first reset the password. And our creative director at the time Her husband knew someone in New York who knew someone in Instagram. And so we were actually at least able to reach someone who turned off our account or froze it. So, you know, no more damage could be done. By this point, the hijacker had deleted our posts, seven years worth of posts. Now, what happens when your posts are deleted, they go into Uh, like a, you know, on your laptop, you have a recycle folder before they're permanently deleted and they're there for two weeks. But you need Instagram to reinstate them and we were unable to reach anyone to reinstate them. So we did lose them. We never got those back. And how has that shaped you in terms of your marketing strategy? It, you know, it it made us take the our foot off the gas a bit on Instagram. Uh, we just felt so vulnerable and exposed and it felt like we could be making a lot of effort uh, only for it to be taken away quite quickly. Um, that for the last few years, we've kept it going. It's an important shop window. So it is very much live and we post regularly, but I wouldn't say we've embraced it and engaged with it and given it the love and care. I think we've come round to the fact that we need to look after it, but we need to look after it in a more methodical, planned manner rather than, you know, a a casual way because that investment doesn't feel uh, safe enough. So actually looking at re-engaging again on Mm. social media platforms. But for a while, we sort of withdrew a little Mm. bit. Mm. So where do you place the priority of your, your marketing efforts now? I think a studio... At our size, 35 people, I think marketing needs to be a lot more central to the studio than we've made it over the last few years. Yeah, yeah. And that in itself is a big job. Look, we're very lucky, you know, Rachel, 60, 70% of our work at any one time is a repeat client. So we look after our clients well and we do repeat projects for them or they recommend us to friends or we do more work within the family. So in many ways, The first and most important thing for us as a business, the biggest marketing we can do is look after our clients. There's no singular bigger piece of marketing. And while it felt like we would be compromising that to do marketing in its purest sense, that was not an option for me. Uh, Now that we've grown to a size and have a structure where I feel we can do marketing, marketing without in any way uh, compromising that service to our clients, I'm I'm ready, you know, we're ready to engage with it again. But for many years, we looked after our clients really well. And that was the very best marketing we could do. When we spoke the other day, you said something that had not crossed my mind that actually has really piqued my interest. And that was the fact that you feel that designers are quite vulnerable at the moment in terms of the emergence of furniture companies offering yes. in-house design services. Can you chat through a little bit around that and what you see as the vulnerability there? Well, I have found anecdotally that a lot of 
furniture companies are offering free in-house design services to clients, saying they'll help them kit out the whole project. And clients are finding that quite attractive. Uh, so we have actually lost two pitches in just the last four months on that basis, where we didn't lose the pitch to another interior designer. The client met with two or three inter- interior designers and told us, look, if we do go with the designer, we will go with you. But they decided to just work with a furniture supplier or a or a, a furniture showroom that's you know stocks multiple uh, brands and that's look there's two sides to it that's very hard to compete with but I also tell myself maybe those were not the right clients for us anyway because there's a layering there and a, you know it's because of electric eclectic collector approach and a layering that we bring to projects, which is very different to going shopping. You and I both know what we do is we don't shop. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very simplistic understanding of what Mm -hmm. we do. I truly believe that what you leave out of a project is as important as what you put in. And I would imagine making an assumption here that if you went to a, a, a furniture supplier, uh, their job would be to fill the project project with as much product as they can, whereas that's actually not our approach. We talk a lot about what to leave out because I think the gaps you leave out are mm. a big part of the success of the project. And over the course of your long established career, has there been a particular moment of success where you thought that was a turning point in my career or that project was a real pivotal moment? Yeah, the, the the early days, every project we won felt like a, a, a huge, huge success. Uh, you know, clients believing in you when you're a, a startup, it was just, it's just absolutely incredible. And I felt very humbled by it and very excited. We've then had a couple of development projects that have been really uh, transformative for us. One in Dubai, uh, where uh, the Omniat team uh, hired us to design uh, the One Palm development that was transformative for us in the region. Mm. We uh, worked on Chelsea Barracks in London. We designed the common parts for Chelsea Barracks and three show apartments that uh, gave us a certain uh, profile and visibility that's been transformative. So we have had some key milestones, but I always say that my favorite project is the next one. You know, I'm always the most excited about the next (laughs) one coming in the studio, how we can take everything we've learned. You know, we have a supplier list of 11,000 suppliers now, ever growing, how we can deploy that on the next project. So for me, the next project is always the most exciting one. Oh, I like that approach because it is is exciting. So... Running a company of your size, at what points do you kind of touch the project um, to make sure that it aligns with your vision? <laughs> yeah. Um, what I'm trying to achieve in many ways is what I call delegate, don't abdicate. And I have always greatly enjoyed working with a team and working through a team. And I've been very lucky that we have some long standing members in the team that you know, can almost, uh, they understand my ethos and my approach to a point where they can do it for me. However, they also bring their own special take on it, which adds value. We had a client presentation last week where the day before the presentation, I was convinced we had made certain design maneuvers that were not right. Our associate director insisted that 
she truly felt that the client brief wanted that. And she was so emphatic and resistant to the change, which she isn't normally. I thought, right, you know what? We're going to go with this. We presented it and the client loved it. She was right, you know. Uh, And I think for Mm. me, those are not moments of embarrassment. I actually acknowledged it afterwards to say, you were right. And I'm so glad I listened to you. I think that's one of the things I have done well. I've hired people who are better than me at many things. And then I try my hardest to listen to them. Because then we're the you know with the sum of our parts makes us better than me as an individual. Mm-hmm. Touch points, we have grown significantly as a studio, but we've actually not increased the number of projects we take on in the last five years. So in the last five years, our maximum number of projects has stayed steady at fourteen, and our typical number of projects has stayed steady at ten. And the reason is so that I can be intimately involved with each and every relationship. Um, The size of the projects has grown, but the number of relationships has stayed the same. So I tend to review every design presentation. I try and join almost every client presentation. I try and review materials. I'm very, very involved. I'm very involved in the spatial layouts. Just this afternoon, I put a reminder on my phone that we're working on this beautiful atelier in Mayfair and how I want to review the uh, technical pack. I tend to uh, try and wake up quite early and I spend my morning between five and seven uh, reviewing design or reviewing technical packs, reviewing plans. That's how I stay in touch with the studio in terms of the design work. That means I don't often do evening plans. And if I do, they have to be quite early. But those morning sessions before the day gets going is when I'll open up a pack of drawings. I'll sketch, I'll brainstorm. So I remain very intimately involved with the studio. Very, very much so. And that in itself is a success because that is challenging. Because the bigger your business, the the bigger your strategic role in terms of, you know, keeping all of that going. So, And I enjoy that too. Uh, so I also do that bit. Mm. But and and on the design, I think <laughs> the important thing there, Rachel, is I I really do let the team design, um, but I play a big role in sort of massaging and directing the flow and and shaping it. But if I uh, I think the 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 mentoring is a big part of what I do at Elysian. So I won't just find the image and send it. I'll, I'll describe what we want to achieve. I'll talk about the ethos, but I will let the person in the design team go out and actually embark on the adventure of finding uh, finding the, the image, sketching it, reviewing it. That can take longer at times, but I feel if I don't invest in that, mm. I'll never be able to create a strong team around me who can genuinely contribute in terms of design. So much as it can feel frustrating at the time and you just need to get a deadline done, longer term, I'm very, very much of the view that it's the right investment. And with the right team, you will get many multiples of it back, you know, many multiples. And you'll have your team saying, you know, we had our annual reviews uh, last month and many people in the team said, I I, I love designing here. I actually get to design. I, I love how I'm guided and given direction, but I'm actually also allowed to get on with designing myself. Mm, and that's very rewarding, isn't it, for the team? And so we've touched upon the Instagram horror. Have there been any other 
kind of big challenges that you've really had to overcome um, during your design career? So many, you know, we've had um, one of our points of um, risk is working with clients so intimately, any change in their life can really throw our projects off. And because we're often working on multiple projects with the same family, if there's a death, we had a death in a client's family, it immediately put two projects, huge projects on pause. So we've had instances where life events with our clients have put the business in in very you know challenging positions we've had challenges mm. you know with the team on occasion uh, you know the personalities in the team members of the team we've had a member of the team leave and take our whole um our whole company it system with them they they downloaded our whole drive <sighs> and took it to a competitor uh, and from that, we uh, learned that our system was too open, people had too much access, uh, that we needed to structure our folders differently. Uh, but that was a huge business risk. You know, we literally had this person walk away with our whole, everything, every document, every fee calc, every every single thing they downloaded and walked away with. So we've had, we've had a range of challenges over the years. Uh, but we've, you know, come through, learned from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've had difficult, yeah. you know, running a small business is, uh, is hard. You, you come up against big challenges, but don't necessarily have the financial or structural wherewithal to uh, throw resource at them. Yeah. And it's not for the faint hearted. No, <laughs> definitely <it? laughs> not. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> okay. So, um, if you could go back to 21-year-old Charu, what, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself is that you are building a brand for yourself from day one in your career. People notice you. People notice how you perform, how you behave, how you respond to feedback, how you hold yourself. They notice your moral compass. They notice if you say if you do what you say you're going to do and I think I inadvertently did that without realizing it but if someone had given that message to me mm. it would have really resonated because today there are people who support me in my career who I crossed paths with in my early 20s in my first roles they were my you know immediate boss they were a colleague and they've gone on to do exciting things that have synergies with what we do at Elysian and uh, we are collaborating or supporting each other. So when you start off your career, you are building your personal brand from day one. And if you look at it that way, it will stand you in very good stead. Mm, that is very good advice. And, you know, it's consistent, isn't it? It's consistency is key. Um, it's great advice. So you've already given us the story of some of your greatest lessons in business so really I, I suppose the big question is where are your goals and what's next yeah so well look uh, you know Elysian continuing to grow at a steady pace um, continuing to advance the caliber of our projects looking after our clients we have international ambitions we already do work internationally but we'd like to continue to grow our international portfolio We'd like to really embrace technology. That's a big investment we're making this year and next year in how uh, the studio producers work in a, in a very dynamic way using technology. 
uh, we would like to look at interesting collaborations, whether it's with furniture makers or brands. I think that's an area of growth that we're we're looking into, uh, and continuing to position ourselves as experts in luxury residential projects, in branded residences, in creating really exceptional homes. Uh, in terms of size of the studio, you know, my ambition isn't to grow to a hundred person studio, but I think there's some degree of growth still to come for us. We have invested a lot in creating workflows and structures that are perfectly poised to allow us to grow very robustly while continuing to maintain uh, the very boutique design output and service that we give our clients. So we're, we're you know, set up well for some degree of further growth. Mm. Do you think you would ever have an overseas studio? Yeah, quite possibly, actually. Yes. I mean, one of the things, <laughs> one of the things, you know, I did, I think, perhaps naively, is I said yes to a lot of stuff in the early days. We'd get an inquiry from Shanghai and I'd say, yeah, let's pitch it and we'd win it. And it would be like, oh, oh, right. How are we going to deliver a project in Shanghai? So, yes, I'm super intrepid. You know, I've lived, uh, I grew up between sort of India, the Far East and the West Coast of America. I moved to, I then went to school in Singapore. I moved to London. For me, um, looking outside of the UK for growth as a studio feels very, very, very possible and, and exciting. No, and I'm sure you will do it. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. And I'm also hoping that the um, procurement system linked to QuickBooks will be something that you will um, capitalise on and market. <laughs> well, yeah, we did. We did. We did talk about that. That could we offer it as a as a uh, service that others could, uh, you know, as a white label service. I, I don't know yet. We're nowhere near offering it to anyone because we haven't tested it ourselves. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's very interesting you say that, Rachel. There are certain systems and processes that we are developing at Elysian that, look, in some ways it's great to keep it to ourselves because, it, it you know, it, it's probably what would stand us apart. But in many ways, I often think that perhaps my sort of legacy is to share that with the industry in time, whether for commercial purpose or not. But there, there are things we're doing that I think are quite unique to the industry and are, are rationalizing and professionalizing the industry in, in interesting ways. And I think there may be opportunities there. Uh, for for a wider benefit to the industry, maybe, maybe in time. I've thrown a <laughs> question at you there, but I'm 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 interested because I mean we use Estimac. Yes, we use STPC right now. Yeah, and I think it functions very well until you want cloud based access, um, and then it's patchwork. Um, and I just feel that actually, as an industry, there is certainly some standardization and some benefit to integration with accounting softwares and other things. So it is it is interesting. I spoke with um, yes. Laurie from Portair during a recent podcast, and she's obviously developing a, a marketplace um, opportunity for um for that kind of thing but mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but a little different mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's interesting to see where your yes. your it development goes in that area I, I feel like i should have asked you about ai as well <laughs> how do you feel about that 
<laughs> yeah, well, look, I think you you have to understand it and, you know, review whether you want to embrace it. So we have two people in our team who spend a bit of time every week um, playing with it, investigating it. I couldn't tell you yet where where my position stands. I don't think it's a threat, uh, certainly to what we do at Elysian, because no. it's so personalized and there's so much about the materiality and the individual items. You know, we go off to Venice to source pieces. We're off to markets and auction houses. I don't see how, at least in the next few years, that could be replicated. Um, but I think there may be opportunities there that could be interesting. So the jury is out too early for me to give a view, but it's something we were spending a bit of time in uh, in, in investigating chat, GPT, AI, uh, you know, softwares yeah. that can generate uh, images for us. We are looking at it, but I do not think it will replace for us the human touch. No, I agree. Beautiful images, but it needs implementing. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And thank God for that. At least you and I can safely uh, plan on having a career till we retire. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Charu, it's been wonderful chatting with My you. My pleasure. Um, your willingness to be really candid and honest and, and share some of your experiences, exactly the narrative that I'm trying to I'm trying to get out. So I really appreciate your generosity of time and, you know, sharing your story. It's a wonderful I one. am so happy to support your cause, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. My pleasure. I love the fact that Charu had the clear vision to define what her business goals were at three and five years and know that even from day one, she wanted a studio of 20 plus people. And part of her planning was to work out every single part of the client journey and craft the structure of the studio and the roles that would be required to deliver that. I mean, that is incredible to think about that at those early days. And I think it's her ability to not be phased by growth or the challenges of growth or the risks of growth and to push through and solidify systems and processes and minimize risk while at the same time being really honest with clients about that. I think that's what's been part of her recipe for success, that she hasn't allowed all of those barriers to success that people perceive to be barriers. She hasn't allowed any of those things to hold her back. And her willingness to share her processes and some of the things that she's had to deal with is really generous and it's one of the reasons that I wanted Charu to be one of my guests because I knew that she would be really honest and she would share some of that with us and it's really inspiring you know we don't all need to think small thank you for joining me I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks' time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by the Business of Interiors. 
If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me, please reach me at hello at thebusinessofinteriors.co.uk. Finally, it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow, leave a review and share this program amongst your design community. This show is sponsored by Rachel Usher Interior Design. Thank you so much for joining me.